I remember when hip hop came on the scene, man, and I saw for the first time a DJ rocking a party. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I, that's what I want to do. And I saved up, man. I saved up and I, uh, I remember I started, uh, I first started DJing with two double cassette players. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest edition of the Beat Talks podcast. I'm your host, DJ Ruche, the official DJ for the Los Angeles Lakers and AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour. And this week's show, couldn't be more excited about getting to chat with DJ OG1 from the Portland Trailblazers. We've never met prior to this podcast, and I learned so much from him. I hope you do as well. He's so much more than just a DJ, he's a cancer survivor is a shoe designer. He's also an author, which I highly recommend you get his book. I'm currently reading it right now. He's lived an amazing life. Links to all that stuff will be in the bio of this podcast. Hope you enjoy. I suggest you take notes as you listen to this podcast because he is dropping knowledge the entire time. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, OG1. DJ OG1, the official DJ for the Portland Trailblazers. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Well, first thing, I want to know, how long have you been with the Trailblazers? Oh, man, uh, 12 seasons, man. And then my next big question is, what is the vibe like in the arena when it becomes Dame time? That's what I want to know. Man, like, it's, it's, it's undescribable, man. We have, we have some amazing, I know a lot of people say it, that they have, you know, amazing fans, but I think it's just well known in the in the, uh, in the league, man, that Portland has a very uh, unique and loyal fan base. And when they when they go in, man, they go in. So anytime we're in situations where Dane breaks out the, oh yeah, it's go time. It's it's go time. It gets crazy loud in the arena. Look, I've seen it in person when he's an opponent of my team, and like you can people get scared. They legitimately get scared. He hits a few threes in a row and you're like, here it comes. Like, you know, it's coming and you cannot stop it. Then there's only a few players in the NBA like that. And he is one of those players. I, I would agree, man, is when he's in that zone, it's like, okay, where is he going to throw it from now? And it, it just sets, it just sets the, the, the arena just on fire, man. That saying where like, oh, he's your rapper's favorite rapper. I feel like Dame is a lot of NBA's players' favorite player. I would agree. Yeah, I I hear that a lot behind the scenes for sure. Yeah, yeah, man. So really, one of the main things I wanted to have you on it's it's a uh, pet peeve of mine. Certain things that how people approach us as DJs, but I've seen you do some really well thought out tutorials, especially on Instagram, about how artists should approach sports DJs who want to have their music played at the arena. Can uh, you talk about that a little bit and how you even decided to put out some of those tutorials? Yeah, well, um, you know, I've been around in Portland specifically. I've been on the music scene since 93 in Portland. And uh, Portland, you know, unlike, you know, cities like L.A., New York, uh, where some of the bigger music industry markets are, um, Portland is not known for having a music industry, even though we've had great talent come out of this region, but it's not known when you first, you know, people skip, they go LA, they skip over Portland and go to Seattle. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I wanted to intentionally do as a DJ, which as you know, man, we, we're music curators. Oh yeah. Now our job is, and, and we take pride in being able to find those records and before any other DJ, I'm like, oh, I got, I put this, I broke this record. So one of the things I wanted to do, of course, someone will be trying to call me. Uh, Always happens. <laughs> uh, but one of the things I wanted to intentionally do was uh, support, find a way to support the local artists here in the Portland scene. And as years were going by, I started noticing things that I assumed as a DJ like people would know this like artists should know this as the years kept going by I was like nah they really don't and especially you know here in Portland and then as I started tapping into a lot of independent artists around the country or internationally that would send me their music I started seeing just kind of common etiquette things that were just like okay 
they're not getting it. And especially with the digital age, it's like everybody, you get music so much faster. And as DJs, we have to sift through that stuff and see, okay, what stuff is good? What stuff sucks? You know what I mean? And so it's bad enough we have, we you know, have an influx of that. So with the artists, I was like, somebody's not telling them or they just don't know or they're just being lazy. And so that's one of the things that kind of sparked the whole idea of, okay, what if I just started having some workshops that started teaching uh, artists about etiquette, about the proper ways of formatting your music? What is a DJ pack? Some of these artists don't even know what a DJ pack is or what to put in it. Um, Just how you approach DJs. And it kind of all fell under the umbrella of... um, my company is called Leadertainment. And so Leadertainment is, is really about uh, how can you enhance uh, not only just personally, but professionally individuals' lives and making sure that they both meet up. And so some of that process with artists, I work with artists and athletes. So part of that is, is getting and saying, okay, now that you've created this music, how do you get it out to people? And what's the appropriate way? So that's kind of how it would spark some of the uh, uh, the workshops that you've seen, like, you know, how to, you know, tag your music. Something as simple as tagging your music so when you and I as DJs pull it into Serato, we're not, what is those letters? What are those characters? That's yep. not what it said in your email. But <laughs> when I downloaded that joint and tried to upload it down, I have to remember, who, what artist was that? What's the name of the song? And... Hopefully it's the right version, you know, of it. Yeah, I never fault I never fault anybody for not knowing that stuff because, you know, as us as DJs, right? Like music is so accessible now, it's on everybody's phone. They just send you a Spotify link and think that's how you're DJing it to the arena. Right. So the education side, I, I'm all for that. And then it's also how they approach me too. Like Ninety-nine percent of the time, I can tell if the song is going to be good just by the way they communicated with me. And then I have literally sent people to your page, and be like, "Hey, I need a clean version. I need an instrumental. If you want to send me some other stuff, that's great. It's a DJ pack. But hey, go over to uh, I will literally send them the link to your Instagram page. I'm like, read this. This will help you when you reach out to future DJs besides just me. It'll, right. You need to make it as easy on us to get your music played. I'm I'm happy to help you out." I have no problem helping them out at all whatsoever. Help me help you. Exactly. 100%. Help me help you. And then, uh, and again, getting into some of the deeper conversations, uh, there's a group here in Portland that I helped start, uh, that I started. It's called the Collective PDX. And basically it's uh, artists, promoters, et cetera, et cetera, uh, uh, to start having some of these very uh, real conversations about, you know, how does a DJ feel when the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, I'm the hottest thing out right now. You should be listening to my stuff. Get all the rest of the I'm the hottest thing. And it's like, okay, we've heard that hundreds of times. So what as a DJ is going to motivate me to say, okay, yeah, I, I rock with this person. And it all comes back down to relationships. I, my emphasis is on relationships. How about you go build with DJs and, and and come to the table and say, hey, I got something I'm working on here. You know, I would love your feedback on it. You know, let me know if it's hot. If it's not, if it, I need to work on it some more. And here's what I'm willing to do in exchange for your time mm-hmm. and opinion. Yeah. And again, that's an educational thing too, right? Like if all you've ever heard is rapper or another artist like bragging about their stuff, you're like, well, that's what I think I'm supposed to do. So when you approach us as DJs, like, this is the greatest thing ever. Don't play any of that other trash you're playing. It's like, well, now you put me on the defensive and that's not going to help your cause at all whatsoever. Right. So again, it's all an educational system too of how to approach us or approach anybody, not even just DJs, but anybody you want to promote your music to. Um, it could, and it may be the greatest song ever, but if you put people on the defensive, it's the, ish, the percentage of them playing that song is going to drop a lot. Yeah, especially when I, you know, I have an hour to play a set and which you and I know you know, might get maybe 20, 30 songs in, maybe if I depend on how you mix it in and out. And 
there's enough industry artists that are platinum artists on charts that I have to sift through. And you go as an independent artist saying, no, I shouldn't play Jay-Z. I should play you in that slot to my listeners or the fans in the arena who don't know who you are, never heard of your song, but you say it's the hottest thing. And I always tell artists from the get-go, if you are the only one saying it's the hottest thing and your mama and them is the only one saying it's the hottest thing, there's a problem. Now, I have no problem with you being confident about Mm -hmm. music, but most people who have hot songs, it's everybody else that's saying it's hot. Correct. Not you. It's just, and hey, I'm the hottest DJ. I'm the dope DJ. Yeah, I'm killing these dudes. And I'm... But I'm the only one that said it. Nobody else said it. And, uh, uh, some might be, you might have to, you know, reevaluate some things. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of when artists approach me, they're like, hey, what do you think of the song? And if it's not my personal taste, that's fine. But I, 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 can, I can tell you if it's a good song or not. Whether it's my personal taste or not, I can still tell if it's a good song. But what I tell most people is, if you listen to your song, and you think it can stand between a Drake and a Jay-Z track or Migos or whatever, like, and doesn't, they don't have to be as good as them or better, but if the energy level drops or the vibe changes between those two songs, why would I place your song in between them? Cause I got to take somebody out that everybody knows to put you in. Right. And I don't mind giving people a shot, which is something that I noticed that you do a lot too. You'll have like local sets of artists and then we'll tag them on your Instagram page that you played them at the arena. How did that come about? So again, you know, uh, for me, uh, just one, not only just being a DJ, but being a producer and, and I know what it's like when you put your hard, you know, time and energy into something and you just want someone to give you a shot, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just give me a chance at least. And so, you know, with the artists, independent artists, I just, okay, what platforms could I possibly you know, maximize it, give them a chance. And so between the radio shows that I do um, uh, and the arena, it's like now part of it is the education piece too in terms of, okay, if I play your song in the arena, you have to leverage and maximize it. If I'm going to take the time to play it, I'm going to film it and I'm going to post it and I'm going to post a playlist on Serato or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you shout out. What did you bring to the table? Like, so if I'm going to do that, at least you can promote that your song is going to be played in the NBA arena. How much leverage does that give an artist when they go to negotiate and oh. say, my, my song was featured in the NBA arena? Whoa, so I want to give them a little edge, but part of that education is some people think that they deserve that before they've even earned it. So there's been some lessons I've had to learn in that as well. It's like, okay, am I spoiling some artists by giving them the wrong impression as though it's something other than me sharing my platform as opposed to, oh man, you blowing up so big, they had to play you in the arena. As you know, as a DJ, we hear how songs that's out and the people are talking, oh, yeah, I got to play this. I got to put this in the arena. The large portion of independent artists, that's not how it's happening. Their build is a little bit slower mm-hmm. than you know, those that are in the industry. And so getting them to understand that so it brings a sense of appreciation and, and value where they understand the level of value and that a DJ, you know, is is... He, he or she operates on a level in terms of support of those that they feel they get more support from. If that's the person that comes to my mind, if, you know, as an independent artist that I'm going to support is those that I see that rock with me when I didn't play their stuff in the arena that week or on the radio show that week. But they still, hey, man, y'all need to go follow OG or, hey, he has this event going on. Y'all should come check it out. Or he just put out a, a single, whatever. Y'all should go check that out. Those are the artists that I'm like, okay, see, I can rock with them because there's an exchange, especially if you ain't paying me no money. And they get it. Like, they're the ones that get it. They're like, hey, I, I will support you. You're supporting me. So that goes back and forth. Not that I require that of anybody, but that's going to go a long way. Exactly. Yeah. 
and as a music producer myself, as you know, like I know the feeling of hearing my song at Staples Center. Like personally, I know. So I know what that would be like for other people. Like I'll even have some big name to like other artists that are having support for major labels. They'll just reach out to me and be like, Hey, I heard that my song played at the arena. Thank you. And that's all like, they're not asking for anything. I'm not, they're just coming out and saying, thank you. And they don't need to do that. But I appreciate it. I was like, Oh wow. Like it's a great song. That's why I played it. And you know, not to get anything from them, but if it's a good song, I'll play it. I don't care who it is. It's a common courtesy, man. That again, I think is, is kind of a lost art, man, in terms of etiquette, man. Uh, that, you know, artists, you know, do, you know, times and you know uh i think we just need to get back to that i think the more that artists get back to that basic understanding the more support they'll get what's the saying like you attract more bees with honey something like that yeah yeah so you you're a busy man you're a ceo of one god productions like you said leadertainment you host two weekly radio shows groove theory mix show and in the, in the streets, right? Yeah, so uh, it's actually about to be three. Uh, now I was, uh, another one on uh, the numbers, 96.7 here in Portland, uh, this upcoming Saturday. Wow. So they have four hours on Saturday total on, on, on radio on every Saturday. Yeah, it's crazy, man. For the people listening, when you put together a set for the radio, or you put together a set for the arena, what are the differences in your mind in those two situations? Well, in the arena, uh, it's a bit different because I, you know, in terms of putting a playlist together, um, it's a combination between knowing kind of the vibe that players are feeling. So there's a, a portion of the night that is just totally dedicated. They're on the floor, they're warming up. I know what Dane likes to listen to. I know the kind of music CJ likes. Uh, you know, I get a feel for what players want to warm up to. It then transitions into now fans are coming in and getting settled in and getting their food and, and kind of getting a, a vibe for the arena. So, and there's a, a large uh, age demographic, you know, that comes in the arena. So it's like, okay, I need to play some music that is going to create the energy for whoever I'm, we're playing mm-hmm. at night, uh, whatever might be going on outside of the arena, because there's sometimes, you know, as you, again, as you know, if, you know, when, when Prince died, mm-hmm. Prince passed away, you know, I might have came before that, that day. I remember that day I was coming to the arena and I had an idea kind of like where I wanted to go. But then when that happened, it was like, oh, no, nah, I got to switch it up. Because yep. I know people going to want to hear some prints mm-hmm. on that day, doing the warm pregame or whatever. So I had to kind of switch it up and, and uh, make that dedication. So you got to be real sensitive to kind of the energy in the arena. Whereas radio, radio tends to me uh, for at least two of my shows is a very direct and focused, you know, uh, it's kind of like education, like music education. I get to like, no, this is the music that you guys should be hearing. You know, uh, my Groove Theory Mix Show on Friday that focuses mainly on R&B, soul, jazz, uh, funk, um, really heavy independent, because again, how many radio stations focus on independent artists? They don't, I mean, they're not, you know, do that. And so, uh, so I try to find a balance between which, which people are kind of hearing, but kind of hearing under the radar that's not so necessarily commercial that you're going to hear on a, you know, major uh, commercial station, but close enough where they're like, oh yeah, I know that song. I know that song. You know, it might be the B-side to a Kendrick Lamar or, or something like that, as opposed to what was popular. And then blending in independent artists where they're like, who is that? And then being able to talk, hey, here's some talent that's across, the, you know, around the globe, but they're independent. Uh, whereas Saturday night by In the Streets uh, is a total request live. So it gives me a chance to engage with my listeners and say, OK, my total playlist on Saturday night, except for a few uh, uh, songs that I want them to hear, I got two hours where the listeners are telling me what they want to hear. It's total request live. You tell me what song I'm playing next. 
And I don't know what they're going to tell me. I just, you know, hope I can have it accessible, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is great about technology. It's no like, doubt, especially today. No doubt. Exactly. And so it gives the listeners a feel like they take ownership to the vibe that's created on, on the airwaves. Well, and as a DJ, learning what people in your area want to listen to as well, too. That's just that's just smart by you. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, yeah, man. So, yeah. And how long have you been doing radio? Ooh, man. I've been doing radio since, ooh, probably, I want to say 2005. Okay. About 2005. Yeah, I started off... Uh, with a commercial radio with a jamming 95.5 uh, back then. It might have been a little earlier. Uh, and I was doing that commercial radio. Then they got bought out by CBS and I went to CBS. And then uh, when I realized that they wanted me to mix the same 20 songs that they played in regular rotation, yeah. I was like, I'm cool. <laughs> they actually recruited me because at the time, I was doing so many things in the city, you know, concerts and all that stuff before I ever got on radio. I was doing national television appearances and all that stuff. And they came after me. It was like, you know, why? Why is it that you're out here and your name is more on our radio station than the DJs? <laughs> you know, you don't even work for us. And so it was like, well, you know, if I'm not able to play things that I want to play, if I'm not able to break music, yeah. music, then what am I really doing you know i'm just kind of like you know uh a uh, uh, jukebox mixing mm-hmm. it is crazy how the radio game has changed uh growing growing up i'm sure for both of us like you go to a different city around the country you know they play some of the same songs but i i can tell from listening to the radio what city i was in now that's really hard to do it's all kind of the same that's what happens when you know big corporations buy most of the radio stations yeah so the fact that you have mix shows that you can break music here's some music that I think as DJs were tastemakers. So here's some music that I think you should listen to and then get people's requests. I think I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy that you have that situation. Oh yeah. So I, I left, I actually left with, I left CBS uh, when I just realized, okay, well, you know, I don't want any listeners to listen to me and feel like, Oh, this is all OG one spins. This is mm-hmm. what he spins while I hear on the radio. So I walked away, I walked away from radio and, um, uh, uh, Portland got a, a, a local station called X-Ray, X-Ray FM, and they, uh, some of the people there hit me up and said, hey, we want you to be on our our, our radio station. And I was like, oh, I'm not really into the radio unless I can play the music I want to play. Mm-hmm. No, you make the show that you want to make. And I'm like, what? <laughs> You're like, are you sure? Like you said, radio, right? Like we're right. That's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, radio, right? And it's like, oh yeah, it's you know, internet, and we have you know the station here locally, but we want you to curate whatever show you want to do. Wow. I was like, what? And I, I hopped fully in, man. It was like, yes. So that's where uh, the Groove Theme Mix Show and then these streets uh, came from, and then and again now in the cuts on the numbers is. Uh, going to be new and hitting the scene on Saturday as well. I don't know how you have time for all that. I'm thinking about that right now. I, well, I have no time. I managed me. Yeah, exactly. You got to do what you got to do. Well, uh, looking at your website, um, getting ready for this interview, I noticed a couple of things we haven't had in common. We both were born in Virginia. I grew up in McLean. I saw that you were born in Falls Church. How long were you in Virginia for? Man, I was in Virginia, man, probably just like, uh, six, seven, somewhere around there. Got it. And yeah, then you went, and then you were packed up and moved. Came out to California, right? In Watts, California. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, where I where I live now. So that's where our comparisons are. So how do you go from Virginia to California and then make your way up to Portland? Ooh, so that that's quite that's quite <laughs> that's, a, a that's a long story. That's fine. Yeah, we I actually wrote a book, uh, the man behind the music. Cool. Uh, it talked about my life and journey uh, from. Virginia to LA and how I ended up in, in, uh, in Oregon. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, I don't even know how to tell you the short, it's a short version. Well, I'll tell you what, the link to the book will be in the description. So I will make sure I send people there for sure. Yes. Yes, man. But, uh, the short version of it, man, once I, you know, I got to LA, um, you know, single mom, my mom, you know, 
did her best, man, to try to raise me in South Central LA and, um, you know, ended up being in Watts, living in Watts, uh, a large portion of my younger life. Uh, at an early age, got in, you know, associated, affiliated with gang stuff, uh, just as a part of, that's the neighborhood I stayed in. Mm-hmm. Not because that was something that I wanted to do. It was that, you know, I had to, you know, be on that side because I wasn't going to be the kid that got beat up. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was affiliated for a while. And then I uh, fortunately got uh, some help from a mentor who ended up being a pastor. And he got me out of the, you know, got me away from the gangs, got me into sports. I've always had music around me, uh, but never really knew uh, how I was going to express it, you know, uh, because I couldn't afford, you know, equipment or anything like that as a kid. And so uh, I remember when hip hop came on the scene, man, and I saw for the first time a DJ rocking a party. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I want to do. And I saved up, man. I saved up. And I, uh, I remember I started, uh, I first started DJing with two double cassette players. Mm-hmm. And I, cause I was a kid that had all the music cassette tapes and I would, I learned how to, you know, I start one and when that was going, I blend the other one into it and then I record it. I record them on another, uh, on the other uh, cassette player and people would ask me to make those for them. So I was making those mixes and people for skating parties, parties and everything. That is an actual mix tape. That is, that is where it comes from. That is a mix tape because it is on tape and you were mixing songs back and forth. Yep. Exactly. And so I did that until I was able to save up to get my first turntables, man. I was cutting lawns and, and everything, man, to save up to get my first uh, turn. I still have my first turntables. Awesome. awesome. My first techniques. I still have them to this day. I don't, I, I pack them in the, uh, in the cases. I say, I'm, those are my, my collectors right now. I use other turntables, yeah. but I still have those. But man, after that, uh, uh, I came to Oregon uh, for athletics. So I came up to Oregon with a group. It was a church group had that we had an athletic component to our church. And we were coming to compete uh, in uh, what they call the Cascade runoffs here in Oregon. And so, so we came up here to train and get ready for that. Uh, but unfortunately, while we were doing that, you know, now you're talking about a large group of black up to Oregon mm-hmm. in Sandy, Oregon at that, which was no black people. So you have a bunch of black people talking about, you know, about 50 adults, close to 100 kids probably. And we're running up and down the roads, training. Mm-hmm. The media comes, and uh, we immediately got associated with it. And so that hit the uh, the news and and everything went crazy. Now, mind you, at the same time, um, we were uh, doing athletics, but also we would work at the uh, NBA Summer Pro League, which is at Loyola Marymount. Mm-hmm. Now, that's when I first got introduced to the NBA because I would go there and I work in and. Uh, the pastor had a team in the uh, free agent division that he'll let me play in. Oh, okay. So I got a chance to play against, you know, Dominique Wilkins and all these guys. I'm 16, 17 years old. Wow. Playing, in a, you know, and, and watching these guys that now I see as legends now. Uh, so, so we're doing that. So as soon as L.A. hears the news from Oregon, they start like, what's, what's, what's going on? You know, like, this is crazy. Long story short, man, I end up getting stuck here in Oregon because a whole bunch of stuff uh, broke out after that, man. Uh, a young girl ended up dying from the situation. Uh, my mom ended up in prison for 13 years. I had kids. Uh, at the time, and my kids got taken away from me because I was associated with the, mm-hmm. the group. So I spent 
most of my early years in Portland, just trying to get on my feet, yeah. get my kids back. I had to get my brother out of foster care, get him off to college and, and all this while, you know, getting introduced to the music scene here <laughs> in Portland. So it's, it's been a crazy journey. So I went from homeless man and, and struggling and being associated with a cult uh, which end up being on Time Magazine, Oprah, the whole deal uh, to where I am now, man. <laughs> yeah, no wonder you wrote a book. That was that was a whole book. I'd read that book right now. I, I will be getting the book for sure. Yeah. <laughs> man. Just a quick break to tell you about the bonus episode that breaks down what a DJ pack is. You've heard the term DJ pack mentioned a lot, not only in this podcast, but past podcasts as well. So I invited my friend DJ Inspire from MyDJPacks.com to break down what a DJ pack is. That episode is now available wherever you listen to this pod. But now, let's get back to my combo with DJ OG1. So you're in Portland. You're getting introduced to the music scene. You're doing radio stuff, and then eventually you get to the Trailblazers. How did you end up with the Trailblazers? So that was uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier about building those relationships. So uh I even on the radio. Again, I was doing all the major concerts that was coming through Portland, everything from Jay, Run DMC, you know, I mean, a whole bunch of artists, and I'm, I'm, I'm on there. And then I get invited to uh, DJ an event out at the Nike World Campus. And were you doing those concerts because you were at radio? Is that how you got into oh, those? Was, before radio. This word of mouth. This was this day. You need to have him on deck. So I would get all these calls to do these concerts and stuff. But, you know, for them, I, I was the hottest DJ. Yeah, yeah. They're <laughs> like, who, who's the name in Portland? Oh, that's the name. Okay, we'll get him on the show. Okay, got it. Cool. Uh, it went from that. And then, uh, so I got invited to uh, DJ out at the Nike World Campus where I met the president of Brand Jordan, mm-hmm. who Larry Miller at the time. And so... Uh, he and I hit it off really well, man. I started getting invited to DJ all the Brand Jordan parties and Michael Jordan parties. And so uh, around 2008, Larry decides to leave uh, Brand Jordan. He became the president of the Portland Trailblazers. So that was around the time when DJs were first initially. Irie was mm-hmm. hit as you know in Miami as being the uh, uh, NBA DJ and so I just hit Larry I said hey man hey man and I think LA I think you guys said uh, uh, I don't know if it was you or not but I knew LA had a DJ or was getting a DJ at the time so and- the, the Lakers um, they may have had DJs you know perform at games or stuff like that but I'm the first the guy before me did the organ and all the music but I'm the first like official DJ that they had. And that this is just my fourth season, but you know, Clippers, we got DJ dense, like the whole right. NBA started getting DJs in like, what, 2005, yeah, so, 2006. So at that time it was, I think it was like three DJs. I think it was, uh, the, uh, uh, my man that's in Denver that was at Denver. He, he's no longer there now, but he was, it was, I know for sure it was Irie and him. And so I was like, Hey man, these other teams are getting DJs, man. What's up with Portland? <laughs> What's up with Portland? He was like, let's make it happen. Awesome. It was just that easy. But again, it came from an established relationship that he and I had for like several years, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he brought me on, man, put me on. And uh, I think a few years later, he ended up going back to Brand Jordan. And uh, the Blazers have kept me since, man. And uh, it's just been an amazing ride, man. Awesome. Amazing ride. Great organization. Great fans, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've being behind the scenes, I've heard nothing but great things about the organization. So it's that makes a big difference of your working relationship and the longevity and all that stuff. That helps. Um, what does a typical game day look like for you when you go to the arena? Oh, man. Usually I, I'm, I'm there, you know, of course, a few hours before tip-off. I, you know, it's for me, it's really important to just kind of walk in the arena and, and feel the vibe of everybody from the staff to players are out. And so I, I just kind of hang out for maybe 20, 30 minutes just to see, you know, 
what how the energy in the in the arena feels. I go eat. <laughs> I go yep. grab something to eat and you know, set up and everything. Then you know, I come out pre-game uh when the guys are warming up. So I'm I'm mixing for about two hours, man. Mm-hmm. I'm mixing two hours and then doors open. And so I'm catching the fans before then and then uh maybe like 20 minutes before tip off. I uh I'm on the floor. I'm on the floor going yep. up. Uh, pre-game and then I, I have a mobile uh, DJ booth so I just roll it up to an, uh, uh, our 200 level set up and then wait for a game you know intros they do a little spotlight on me every game put me up on the jumbotron you know I get everybody excited and then the rest of it is just cruising just kind of waiting when I get prompted to come in and play some stuff play halftime play in between timeouts or whatever uh, you know, but that, that's, that's pretty much, that's pretty much my role. So during gameplay, is there a music director doing like the offensive and defensive prompts and like, yeah, signals and things yeah. like that? My yeah. Man, JJ, my man, JJ handled all of those, those prompts and stuff. And he and I, like, sometimes we'll get in, you know, okay, man, depending on again, who we're playing, he might like, oh, gee, man, we need a little something. We need a little umph on, you know, other than the generic stuff and I'll come hit them with something but uh it's, it's great just that that coordination between game ops you know my man Todd Bosma who is an incredible game ops guy mm-hmm. uh, you know just how he coordinates and allows us in terms of the people that handle the music to kind of play off each other it's just uh dope yeah I get this question all the time and just from talking to you I, I already kind of probably know the answer but how much input does the organization have on the music that you play other than like players suggesting stuff they want to hear things like that is it kind of free reign for you or do they put uh hey only do this only do that well uh, i remember when i first when i first started um because i never played you know outside of like basketball tournaments i never played in that type of an arena like that so i had no idea Outside of other than I know what basketball players like, yeah, you know. So I came in on some. I know what basketball players like. You start playing that, and I remember initially game ops was like, "Hey, OG, I, I know that's what the players like, but now that you got fans in here, just pay attention." All he did, he didn't even tell me what like, "Hey, you need to play this type of what." He just say, "Pay attention to the energy in the arena," and I was like. Uh, once he said that, I got it. Mm-hmm. it clicked. You know, it clicked. And I was like, okay. So since then, they, they never tell me uh, what to play. I think in the 12 seasons I've been there, there was only one time. That, and I crack up every time I think about it because I was so caught in the energy that the song, I forgot. I just didn't pay attention to the lyrics of the song. So we're playing OKC. Playing OKC and and we're going into what we call hot timeout. We're going to hot timeout. He said, OG, play something, you know, get these fans going. So I put on the the Thunder Roll by by uh <laughs> Thunder. Oh, ACDC Thunderstruck. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like, yeah, the ACDC. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh uh and I now I totally forget we're playing the OKC Thunder. Yep. So he's like, oh, gee, do you realize that you're playing the Thunder's hype song? We're playing it. I was like, oh. Whoops. <laughs> I was like, ah. Oh. But other than that, but again, another loving lesson that's kind of like, oh, man, yeah, I got caught up in the energy, but I had to make sure that I know the lyrics in some of these things, too, depending on the team. I could have played that in any other team against any other team. Fine. But for them, Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I have uh, I have that song in a separate folder, just for the fear of doing that by accident, <laughs> right? Like, because it's I mean, you know, I'll play it in other instances because it's a it's an energetic song. It's got emotions. Like, it it'll get the crowd going. But like, I, I, yeah, it's one of those where you're like, oh yeah, whoops, because it's a right song for a hot timeout. Right. And that that's I, works. You're like, oh yeah, it's the thunder. Sorry about that, everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look, if that's the one mistake you've made in twelve years, I, I think you're doing just fine. On my notes, because I, I, I deep dived into your website and looking at things, and you, like I said, you're a CEO, 
DJ, music producer, and also a shoemaker. <laughs> you have shoes. People can buy your shoes that you've designed on your website. Right. Right. So, you know, uh, you know, I blame it on, I blame it on Brad Jordan. <laughs> uh, it's always Michael's fault. They, yeah. They, they spoiled me, you know, as a kid, of course, you know, I, you know, my mom couldn't afford, you know, the dope shoes and yep. stuff. So I remember getting my first uh, summer job and was able to buy the Dr. J's, the Converse leather Dr. J's. And ever since then, I've been a shoe guy, you know, uh, in terms of shoe guy in the sense that I just like having fresh pairs of sneakers. Not that I was a collector at the time. It's just like, oh, if I'm going to wear some kicks, they got to be fresh. So once I got connected with uh, Nike and started working with them, they would send me literally boxes and boxes of shoes, man. Boxes and boxes. I kid you not, I don't exaggerate. I've, I've had thousands of shoes, like sneakers that I didn't pay a dime for. And so did that for a while. And then, you know, as, as years went by, you know, and I started getting less shoes from them, <laughs> less shoes from them, you know, and I started thinking, man, it would be dope to have my own shoe. And I had a, a situation with Adidas uh, one year where they were doing a feature on uh, NBA DJs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, not just NBA DJs, but uh uh, DJ influencers and what they did was they took their equipment basketball uh, model shoe and decided to give it to the model to each uh, DJ different DJ and they customize it for themselves cool. so they gave Irene the model he designed a, a Irene version of the equipment basketball they gave me a couple other DJs a few other DJs uh, that and so I kind of got the bug of man I want my own shoe. Like, I want my own shoe. And I've always thought, man, I want, I'm branding everybody else's shoes. I want to have my own shoe. And so uh, when I finally connected with, uh, actually, uh, a lot of shoes uh, reached out to me on Instagram and said, hey, we have this platform where you can design your own shoes and stuff, and you can get a you know part of the profits from it. And I was like, really? So I went and checked it out. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So I started, I started designing my own shoe. And I was like, okay, no, nah, this is what I'm gonna do. I can sell my own shoe, I can design it, I can sell it, and I didn't have to do nothing but design it. They put it together, and if it sells, I get a profit. But for me, it was like, no, nah, I get to design my own shoe. Mm-hmm. And so I can start wearing my own shoes now, you know. So I designed, I, I developed the OG uh, OG1 kicks. Dot com and so people can go on there. Um, I've even the the great thing about that is that um, you know I get a chance to engage with again a consumer and so I remember a, a, a woman at that works for, with the Blazers uh, organization. She was like, "Yeah, I like these shoes. That one shoes you design, but you know I would man I would like kind of the, if." Uh, I would like this kind of color if it was in this kind of colorway. So I was able to go home and, and design that shoe. Awesome. And tag her name on it and say, now, here, I just made you a custom shoe. Then she goes, sell my shoes to all her friends. <laughs> what is the feeling like walking around Portland and seeing somebody wear a pair of shoes that you designed? Man, it's dope. Dope. It's dope because, you know, they're on a high end because, you know, they're Italian, you know, uh, leather and, and uh, they're custom made. So it's not like they're made in mass production. Each shoe is made custom. And so uh, I think that's what kind of makes it unique. And so for a person to go on and buy it, for me, it's like it's very intentional. It's very intentional. And I was like, this is dope, man. This is so it tells me something about really about what they feel about me more so than they feel about the shoe. This is someone who has a certain loyalty to who I am as a brand, as a person, as opposed to, oh, that's just a dope sneaker because there's a lot of dope sneakers out there. You know what I mean? So if someone's going to spend a couple of hundred bucks on a pair of sneakers, they have to really like the person or the brand. And so, uh, yeah, it's dope, man, to see buy stuff uh, that, that you know you had your hands on. Well, it's obvious to me 
following you online and checking out your website and stuff that people do connect with you and you go around and you have speaking engagements. And some of the stuff you speak about is you beat stage three cancer. Um, yeah. Colorectal cancer is cold. Yeah. It's, it, yes. Colon cancer. Uh, yeah. I got diagnosed in 2016 um, and I wasn't sick or anything. I wasn't sick or anything. It's just my doctor said, hey, you're at the age, you know, where you should get uh, get this uh, colonoscopy. Uh, and so I was like, cool. So I went in and came out of the testing and they said, hey, Mr. Jackson, you have stage three uh, uh, cancer. And I was like, what? I said, I'm not sick, though. They said, yeah, you have stage three. I said, how many stages is there? It's four. And I'm already at stage three. So... I was like, okay, well, what do we need to do? What, what needs to happen from there? So um, immediately went into chemo and radiation treatments for three months. Anyway, I'm still working. I mean, I'm still, you know, out community doing stuff. I'm DJing. I'm in the season, you know, so uh, I'm, I'm doing my thing. It, you know, I go to chemo and therapy, to, uh, uh, chemo and radiation early in the morning. This was like uh, actually five days a week. I was going five days, Monday through Friday, and then, you know, I get the rest on the weekend from it, and I did that for three months. And uh, March 14th of 2017, I went into, uh, for them to remove the small, they said, hey, it's, you only, you can't even hardly see the tumor, so we're going to go in there and cut that out, you be cool. And so I timed it, so, because the guys were on the road, they were on the road for two weeks, so I was like, shoot, man, let me get in here. I get a week, a week and a half to, you know, rest, don't have to do nothing. I'm good. Man, went in there that morning. I'm on IG, like, hey, y'all about to go in and stuff. I see y'all on the other side of this. Woke up blind. Woke up blind, totally blind, pitch black, blind, and the total loss of use and feel of my right arm, and I'm right-handed. Did you ask the doctors if they did the correct operation when you woke up blind? Like, hey, this wasn't the area that you were supposed to work on. Like, I don't know, I don't know what kind of questions I would have had other than what. what so happened. I was, first, I was just, I was tripping because I was like, wait a minute, why? You know, I'm waking up and all I see is dark. I hear voices, but I, and it's just dark, and I'm like, what's going on? I'm hearing people just making noise, and I, and, I, and I can't see them arm is on fire. My arm is on fire. So I go to touch my arm and I cannot feel my arm, but I feel the pain is going to set arm on fire. And I'm like, what's going on? And then it gets totally quiet, totally quiet. No, I don't hear anything. And so I'm like, what is going on? And no one, I had no answers. There were no doctors around. Nobody tell me, Hey, here's what happened. If it was complications or nothing. I didn't hear into the next day where they said they didn't know what happened. So I was blind. I was totally blind for at least almost a week. Like I couldn't see anything. They had to feed me. They had to do everything. I couldn't get up by myself. Everybody had to walk with me places or whatever. And they still couldn't explain why my arm was on fire and I couldn't feel my, my arm. And so instantly, you know, what am I to do? I'm the total income of my family. I'm the total income of my family and instantly everything in my life stopped. What were the doctors doing first? So for a whole week, you, I, I'm just going to assume that you thought you were going to be blind for the rest of your life. Are the doctors running tests during that week? Or are they, what are they even attempting to do at that point? They were trying to say that, oh, you know, that, uh, my vision would just kind of come back, kind of like, okay, if your eyes are blurry for a minute, you'll come back. They put some, like, eye drops in my eyes and say, oh, okay, you know, that's just some anesthesia, maybe a reaction or something like that. They couldn't explain, oh, well, they were trying to say that the, uh, in terms of my arm, that it could have been kind of like when your your uh, your feet foot falls asleep. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that can come back anytime. You'll be fine. But I'm in extreme pain where I cannot sleep. It's so painful. And I can't see. And so uh, after about a week, uh, I started seeing 
you know, blurry images. I couldn't really see. And that was just only out of one eye. So even as I'm talking to you right now, I only can see it out of one eye. Uh, is it with, for that first week, was it completely dark? Like you couldn't see images? Like if somebody shined a light in your face, you couldn't see that? Or could you kind of? Nothing. Nothing. Mm. And so as, as it started, I come back, I started seeing movement. I couldn't see, I couldn't identify anything. I just started seeing motion going by. And I was like, okay, my vision is going to come back. It's going to come back. So that gave me some sense of hope. Mm-hmm. But that last, I couldn't really, I couldn't, all I could see is motion. I couldn't identify anything. So my wife had to, my wife had to take care of me. And now that's vision, arm, plus I, I have a, a, a colostomy. So now here I got a bag on me because of the surgery they did. So I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. I can't do none of that. My wife had to do everything for me. And so, you know, that was my experience, man, for, you know, a few months in terms of not being able to see. Um, and, you know, it's right in the middle of the season. So we're about to go into playoffs. And my wife, my wife took me to a game. I remember I went to a game and I, she had to hold me and, and walk with me and sit with me. And, I, you know, all I could feel is people touching me and, you know, and saying, you know, they're praying for me. But it, it crushed me, man. I'm sitting in the game and I couldn't enjoy the game because it's like I'm supposed to be playing this music right now. Yeah, because you feel you're a part of the organization, a part of the team. You, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was crazy, man. But the great thing that came out of that, uh, was just seeing the overwhelming support from the organization, uh, the team, uh, and just the fans, like fans and people in the community, man, that came out and, and supported uh, me and my family financially. Uh, I mean, crazy, bringing food to the house, man. And it, it was just, uh, it was humbling for me, you know, because I've always been a person that uh, I've always given I've always given and, and, and served people. And so this is the first time in my life that I felt like, you know, this is what it feels like to get some of that in return. Yeah. And you were forced to, you're in a position where you had no choice, but to accept all that. Yeah. Because you couldn't do anything. That's uh, so how long until, like you said, in one of your eyes, you're still blind, but you can see out of your right eye and your right arm, like how long until like the pain went away and you could feel your right arm again. So the pain is there constantly, even now. Today, but uh, it gets wet too. As I started doing therapy and things like that, um, I started being able to move and I started getting feeling in my hand and stuff like that. Once I got feeling in my hand, even though I was dealing with the pain, once I was able to feel, then I was like, yes, yes, okay, I can feel my hand. And I remember immediately, uh, my therapist said, she told me, she said, you need to start doing the things that you would have normally did if you weren't blind. She said, don't let it have a mental block where you're like, I can't use my arm anymore. I can't use. So she, she said, what is it that you do? And I said, I DJ. She said, start DJing. She said, just to start DJing and using your hands just as though you weren't blind. And Here's what's so interesting, and you can look this up on YouTube. Back in 2013, uh, I got in a space where I wanted to, because uh, all the stuff I was in, you know, as a younger kid, my mom took me out of public school. She took, I put, took me out of public school, and I was involved in the church stuff. So I never finished high school, never got a, a a diploma or anything like that. So I got in a space in my life where I was like, I want to do this. I'm helping other kids graduate from high school, send them to college, and I've never done it myself. So I went and got my GED, was, uh, uh, went to co- uh, uh, community college, was graduating in 2015. One of my uh, psychology classes where you had to take on the role of somebody for a day. And give a report. You want to take a guess on what role I decided to take? A blind person. And I had my guy, it's on YouTube. I couldn't have planned it. My guy filmed it. He filmed the whole me that day going to school. I had some goggles on, 
that was blacked out. I had the little uh, cane, walking cane. I'm going last. I'm doing yoga. I'm going to the arena, packing my stuff, setting my stuff up, my DJ stuff up blind. Wow. And DJ. Just two years later, to be blind. Crazy. If you you made that story up, like you couldn't make that up and tried to make it like a movie or a TV show or book, you'd be like, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not going to believe that. But it, yeah, it just blows my mind. I'm actually kind of speechless, to be honest with you about it. Uh, yeah. It is on YouTube. I did an interview and everything. It's yeah, on- check it out. And, uh, uh, and, and I looked back on it and it was like, for me, it was it to me it was God's way of preparing me for something I had no idea I was being prepared for, and so uh, I think it was that that allowed me to the to emotionally deal with once I was faced with it because it was kind of familiar. Other than the pain part of it, it felt I've been here, I've been in this space before, and uh, you know. Yeah, it was, it's been crazy. But yeah, I was, uh, once I started getting feeling in my my arm and um, I knew for a while I, I wasn't going to be able to see fully because it was just going real slow and I still only could see out of one eye because I never used to wear glasses. And so once they gave me glasses and to be able to enhance uh, my vision out of the right eye more, then I started being able to see, you know, like the, the, uh, the uh, uh, computer screen, so I had to enlarge my 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 Ciroc so I could see. Uh, and by that time, I came back to the season. Once the season started back in October, like that happened in March. Once October happened, came around, and the season start. You know, because I had already made it in my mind that I was going to allow somebody else to kind of fill my space. And I asked my, hey, I got some partners, some DJs that are good. They can come and they say, absolutely not. And I was like, yo, sure, I, I'm, not, I'm not tripping. You know, let them come. And they're great guys, great opportunity. They said, nope, when you're ready to come back, you can come back. Awesome. And so I came back that season, man. It was crazy, man, the welcome that they gave me. But still, I was, I was handicapped legally. I was legally blind. My wife had to, even with me coming back, I had to have assistance. I had to have her walk me to my space. Uh, he just, I couldn't really see the jumbotron, so I had to totally really go off of the game set oh, yeah. uh, for certain things. And uh, But at least right in front of me, I was able to uh, kind of get back adapted to the to the game. And so certain things even now as I can't that I used to do that I can't do as much because just visually if things move too quick, I can't. So like, you know, being able to Juggle back and forth like I used to. I can't just because of visually things go blurry. Got it. So, but I'm, I'm blessed, man. God is good, man. I'm, I'm, I'm able to do the stuff that I, I love to do, man. And uh, even though, you know, I've gotten to the place, you know, I deal with pain every day in this hand. Uh, but it's to the point where now, I don't really even pay attention to it, man. It doesn't. It doesn't govern my life, and it doesn't govern my my attitude and my approach to people, man. And so, yeah, awesome. Well, I that's an inspiring story. I appreciate you being as open as you are and as honest as you are on this on this podcast, and appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. If people want to get in touch with you, whether it's just to follow you on social media or have you for speaking engagements, how can they get in contact with you? Yes, um, they can definitely hit up uh, um, my IGs and Twitters, OG, uh, DJ OG1, DJ OGONE. Uh, visit the website, uh, DJ OG1.com. Uh, all the contact information to my uh, the Get Me Book or whatever is on there. Uh, Leadertainment.net, you know, for speaking. Or, uh, yeah, so they can. I'm not, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> well, I'll put all the links to that stuff will be in the description of this podcast. So if they didn't have a chance to write that all down, they can uh, click on the links in the description for sure. And even the book, the book, uh, the man behind the music, they can get that digital. Uh, only, it's only a digital format right now. Uh, I'm publishing stuff, but uh, uh, digital format on uh, Amazon Kindle. 
Well, I, I will be getting that later today. Uh, count it. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully, uh, we'll uh, restart this season. If not, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll just run it back again whenever the 21-22 season begins. We'll see. Yeah, man. Yeah. They need to get something, man, for all the DJs. They, be like, they need to have all of us do something, man, like All-Star Weekend, man, with all the NBA DJs coming Yeah, together. I know with on our Instagram page that everybody's talking about, it, it would be a – I think next season is an opportunity to do things that we never would have done before, not even just we as DJs, but just the NBA in general. and would make sense to do anything different because it's like, Hey, we're coming back. We're just, this is going to be a little bit different this year because it's this season and everybody will have understanding of that. So I would love to be in a room with all of the DJs in person from around the NBA. Cause there's only so many of us. I would love that, but at least we can communicate via social media right now. And that's how you and I, we've never met before. And so I really appreciate you coming on to the show. Thank you. Oh, wow, man. Thank you for having me, man. It's, it's, it's good to meet you as well, man. Thanks for checking out the latest edition of the Beat Talks podcast. I'm your host, DJ Ruche. I really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with DJ OG1. He's an amazing man. Can't wait to meet him in person. Make sure you check out that DJ Pack special bonus episode. Pass it on to your artist friends, which makes it easier for us to play your music. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.